Good morning, everybody. Let's come to God's word with a prayer. Let's pray. Lord, your word comforts and encourages us, promising that as we wait upon you, we will discover your strength. For many of us come today with joy and thankfulness, with glad hearts, and lives filled with what we take to be your blessings. Others of us come feeling crushed, fraught, doubting, overwhelmed, puzzled, sad. But whoever we are, and whatever the current circumstances of our lives, we want to wait upon you now. Hear your word. Receive its truth with the joys and the challenges which that brings. Be strengthened in our faith. Pursue the Lord Jesus and be people of a prayerful dependence upon your grace. Bless the children as they gather and learn from your word too. And may the glory be yours. Amen. So we're coming to this subject again this morning of prayer. And the topic of praying through pain, praying when your life is not happy, perhaps is chaotic or, or scary, and certainly difficult. And pain does different things to different people. I know people who, when their life is filled with pain, they are driven to the Lord. That's their natural direction, or at least it is by God's grace. I think it's more common for Christians when life is painful to move away from the Lord because sadness and questions just overwhelm us and seem to fill every kind of pore of our being and our experience. Really, the Bible was written to answer one question. Why is there so much pain? Why is life often so hard and so difficult? And really, we could have gone exaggeration. We could have gone almost to every single chapter in the Bible to get some material to deal with this question of how we pray when life is painful. I just happened to camp this week in Psalm 27. I can't remember if I preached it before. But there's so much here which is so good. This psalm has been my delight through the week. And I'm eager that we dive into it together. I want to say two things this morning. And the first of them is this. Because when pain seems to stop your praying, or even when you pray and there's just too many questions and doubts about God, David, who wrote this psalm, is really saying through it to us that we can be confident in God. Now, that's what you'll hear every, every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, every time we meet as Hope Church, we can be confident in God. And you might think, yeah, I've got that. I've heard that many times. But the important things in the Christian life are the very simple things. They're the basic things. And if we are to hunt down the reasons why we struggle to pray, or, what, or perhaps why pain often stops or hinders our praying, it is ultimately because we have lost confidence in God. So let's take this lesson first. We really can be confident in God. I'm taking that word confident because it's, it, it's, it's a word which pops up twice at key places in the psalm. Eyes down, please, at verse 3. With all that David's going through, he says, even then, 
Even then will I be confident. And then eyes further down to verse 13. I am still confident of this. And the Holy Spirit is saying to us this morning through his word, whatever we're going through, whatever the pain is, or maybe if we're in a a more comfortable season of our lives, when the pain comes, you can and you must be confident in God. Let's start in those that first section of the psalm. And it's easy when uh, when we're reading this psalm to think, gosh, David has a really comfortable life. Everything seems to be working out for him. Look at how it opens. God is his light, his salvation, his stronghold. Verse 3, he's confident that his enemies will, will uh, or, or the armies against him will not overcome him. It seems like things are going well. That's that burst of confidence and, and praise. We might think he seems to have a, a charmed life. He's wearing some kind of bulletproof armor. Wish we had that. Wish our lives were as good as David seems to be. His confidence in verses four to six is obvious. He, he's seeking the God and he expects to dwell in the Lord's house, verse four, all the days of my life. To gaze upon his beauty, to know, verse 5, that God will hide him in the shelter of his tabernacle. To know, verse 6, that his head will be exalted above the surrounding enemies. He will sing and make music to the Lord. We want that kind of life, don't we? If only God would just get rid of all the rubbish or the, the difficulties that we're currently dealing with, then we would praise, then we would be confident. But actually, a closer reading, and I'm sure many of you picked this up as Lisa read the psalm to us, is that David's life is anything but charmed, anything but pain-free. In fact, there's probably more pain in David's life than a number of us are going through here when we think our lives are tough. David, verse 2, has evil men advancing against me. They want to eat him up to devour his flesh. He has enemies and foes who are attacking him. That could be verbally. That could be slander and accusation. But there are many passages in David's life into which this kind of attack is is, is physical. They are trying to assault him. They want to kill him. Verse 3, there are situations in David's life where he was literally besieged by armies and wars broke out, which he was at the center of. I'm glad my life's not like that. I'm sure you're glad too. So what we've got is David being very confident in God whilst David is having a very, very hard time. And we'll discover him turning his confidence into God into confident prayer. And that's what we want and need, isn't it? In the difficult times. So these opening verses still in front of us, look at them like this. You can only celebrate the Lord as your light if there's darkness in your life which you're struggling with. 
You're only going to glory in your Lord that he is your salvation if you're knowing danger or guilt. You're only going to worship the Lord as the stronghold of your life if there's some very, very scary things in your life. You'll only celebrate God's delivering power and have the confidence that your enemies and foes will stumble and the besieging armies will not break through and the wars will not go against you. You'll only have that confidence if you know God is that loving and powerful and able to deliver you when you cry out to him. In other words, you're going to grow in your confidence in God as you respond to your pain biblically and appropriately. So I made the observation, it may or may not be true for you, but I think it's true of most Christians that pain can push us away from God. The pain we inflict upon ourselves by our sin, the pain that other people's sin inflicts on us, the pain of life's hard circumstances. Our natural instinct is to hide away from God and to go into ourselves. And when we think about God, what thoughts and what feelings are uppermost? For many Christians, it's that God doesn't love us. He's not the merciful Father in heaven we were thinking about last week. He may be for somebody else, but for me, I see no evidence. We may think he's punishing us. Those 99 sins he seemed to overlook, but the 100th, whack. He's punishing me. And then we may reason why he's not real after all, because my next door neighbor doesn't believe in God and their life seems very comfortable. And they've got their really effective mechanisms of dealing with the rough spots in life. So we lose heart in God's love, in God's mercy, and sometimes even in God's existence. And we're tempted to push him away. And we stop praying, and we pray just dutifully, fitfully, just to tick a conscience box. There are Christians like that, I'm sure, in our church. Your prayer life dried up many months ago, maybe many years ago. No, no, nobody knows. I, I don't know. Because we're good at hiding these things, aren't we? And our game face is fairly impressive. But, but maybe, maybe that's you and you know. Could it be because actually deep down, under all the hard circumstances and the hard blows, you're living with a view of God which says, he's not loving, he's down on me, and possibly he's not real at all. I think Christians can kind of cope with that disconnect between what the Bible says and what your heart says. You can cope with it for a f even for a few years, but not much longer than that. And there is no joyful Christian who's living with that massive disconnect 
Bertrand Russell was um, a political and an intellectual figure who had a massive impact in the first half of the 20th century. He's a very outspoken atheist and would go and speak on platforms and write many books and influence many, many people in this country and far beyond. And I can remember as a late teenager reading one of his well-known essays, which was written 101 years ago. It's called A Free Man's Worship. And he's sketching out his worldview. Then he's saying how we need to live in the light of, for, for Russell, the fact that there is no God. Just to give you a flavor, this is what he wrote in that essay. He said, The life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain. Now, that's some of you parents of young children, isn't it? That's what happened last night. Last night was a, was a long march with invisible foes and you were tortured with weariness and pain, but it's the morning. We go again. But Russell's making a far more serious point. He's saying there is no God, and this is just our experience, isn't it? He's saying there's nothing beyond what we experience in this life. But he goes further. He says, as he's trying to insist that there is no God, there's nothing beyond the material. He says, only with the scaffolding, or we might say with the framework of these truths, only on the, f- listen to this, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation, life, be safely built. That is, that is horrific, isn't it? Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can you build your life. Thanks, atheism. That just sounds so good. That doesn't work. There were some houses built near where we used to live, and they were built over a mine shaft. They won't be there for many years before they will start cracking. And there'll be massive structural problems. The way the builders got away with building them there is they had an allocation of social housing. So they sold off the nice houses on the safe ground. And they built the cheap ones they could flog to the council on land which would ultimately give way. Life is pain for everybody. And I don't recommend that you you have a worldview which gives you unyielding despair. I think he's wrong. And he has no good news or hope for anybody. But David says we have so much more in a troubled and a pain-filled world and life. Now let's just think, let's go from the intellectual, let's go to the genius. Let's go to Jesus Christ the wisest man who ever lived. The man who lived life, the wisest of any person who ever lived. Jesus knew this psalm. He would have memorized it. He would have sung it in the synagogue. He would have sung it at the temple. He would have reflected on it 
and brought it into his life experience. The Bible says as a young, a young child of man, he grew in wisdom. That means he reflected on Psalms like this. And he brought them into his life and his faith as a man so that he might live wisely in the light of the sharp, painful blows of human experience. So we see David's struggles, but also we see Jesus' struggles. And we remember that Jesus had his evil men in his life. His enemies, those who encircled him. And the war of God's anger at our sin, which broke out against him upon the cross. And Jesus went through his life choosing to believe his father's goodness. Embracing confidence in the presence, the mercy, the promises of God in his life of difficulty and trial, even to and at the cross. So if you look at verse 13, and just think about how Jesus would have sung and believed that verse. How did that play out in his life? Imagine the voice of your Savior. Imagine that voice at the cross. If his mind ranged over this psalm, I, says Jesus, I'm still confident I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And he dies taking our sin and shame upon us. And he dies in confident faith. Remember declaring at the cross his last breath, it is finished. He was confident that his father would receive the payment he paid for the sins of his people. And he died with full assurance that he would see the goodness of the Lord in a new land. A land which he died and would rise again to win for you and for me with our Christian faith. So Jesus showed that this psalm is utterly reliable. And Jesus models how to live with a confident faith. And the whole New Testament says that because Jesus died and rose again, we can be absolutely confident that God is for us, that God is merciful, that God is real, and that we can cast all our burdens and bring all of our tears and our pain to him. Let me read again the three favorite verses of many, many Christians. The Apostle Paul is he's pastoring the church at Rome through their pains and their difficulties. Says to them, in all of these things, Romans 8, 37 to 39, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, or we could say, I am confident that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8, 37 to 39. No separation 
utter confidence that when your life gets hard, God's plan has not derailed. God is not stopping hearing your prayers. Going to prayerlessness and its bedfellow, unyielding despair, is not a good place to go. God has not changed. His fatherly heart is always kind. The resurrection guarantees his goodness to us. This is the Christian gospel. Come to God through Jesus and nothing will separate you. He becomes for you light, salvation, stronghold. And you can be strong, verse 14, and take heart. And as he leads you through the pain, you can wait for him, for his way and his timing and his means as he guides you. But let's explore together a little bit more. We can be confident. Without confidence, we can hear all the sermons we like about prayer techniques and tips. But if the confidence is not there, we've not built the foundation. But if the foundation is there, we can build on it in lives which are increasingly reliant upon God through prayer. So we're going to come to the heart of the psalm. And just a quick reminder of what we learned last week. The intersection of God's word and faith and prayer. We need God's word. Remember how the Apostle Paul says that faith comes through hearing. So we hear God's word. We hear it in sermons, studies, personal devotion, memorization. We bring that word into us, as we've been doing. And then we respond to it with with faith. Faith is our yes in response to God's yes to us in Jesus. We're saying yes to him in response to what he says to us through his word in Jesus. And then we're turning that yes into prayer as we articulate all that we need and all that we want. And there will at times be those struggles. Please don't feel, yet. well, I have some faith in Jesus. My faith isn't strong enough to pray. If your faith is in Jesus, you have the right faith. And you must pray. God is not looking for strong faith. He's looking for faith in the strong Savior. And we get that wrong time after time, don't we? I'm too guilty to pray. I'm too prayerless to pray. I'm too doubting to pray. But we're, we're drawing the conclusions for our behavior from our lives. And that's never a good way to go. Instead, we go out of ourselves into God's word. We come back to God through that word with faith. And then we turn our needs and requests into prayer, even in the presence of doubt. Look at David's worries in verses 9 and 10. He worries, he fears that God would hide his face from him, turn his servant away, be angry with him. He pleads that God would not reject or forsake him. Well, that's us, isn't it, at times? We've been too bad. We've been too prayerless. We've been too inconsistent. We've, we've given into our, into temptation. The gospel says, 
Jesus was abandoned so that we will never be abandoned. He cried out in prayer so that we will always be heard as we cry out in prayer. Even if parents were to reject us, verse 10, because of Jesus, the Lord will receive us. So we seek God. We're learning from David. What does it mean to seek God, to pray when life is tough? Two things come through in this psalm. Believers who are confident in God pray for protection and they pray for guidance. Think about each of those words. We pray for protection. We only need protection when life is difficult and when there's danger. And we only need guidance when life is challenging and we don't know how to live and we don't have the resources. So prayer is uniquely crafted for people like us, isn't it? Who are always facing all sorts of danger and always finding life hard and perplexing and confusing in, in so very many ways. So how does, how does David turn his life situation into prayer? Verse 4. Let's look at that little section, 4 through to 6, the heart of the psalm. He wants to seek God in a particular way, he says, that I may dwell and seek God and know God in five places. There are five key words that David uses in verses 4 to 6. He uses the word of house. Or we might say temple, God's dwelling, God as his shelter, God as his rock, God as his tabernacle. Five key words there. But David is saying he wants to discover God's protection. And security and comfort. It could be a shelter, a very impermanent place in the the wilderness of life. A rock in a featureless, boring desert. Or coming into the city. Remember the temple hadn't yet been built. That was built by Solomon, David's son. But David could go to the tabernacle, that special tent. And go there. And know God's protection. He said he wanted to dwell, verse 4, in the house of the Lord. Well, if he's thinking about the tabernacle, he couldn't dwell there. At the end of the day, they would would shut it up. He'd, He'd have to go home. But he's using this language to say he wants, he wants all that God is in the tabernacle. To be the God who will dwell closely with him. What does the tabernacle and the temple which superseded it, what, what do they tell us about God? And the God David wanted to dwell with. And the God we dwell with in Jesus Christ. The whole layout and the rituals of the tabernacle say, we need forgiveness and God has a sacrifice for forgiveness. We need the light of God's love and presence. 
And at the tabernacle and temple, there's light. And there's the presence of God because he dwells there. And we need to know God hears prayer. And for David, taking his mind to the tabernacle, he's thinking of those great clouds of incense and the billowing smoke of the altar sacrifices and remembering that those prayers made rise to heaven and the God who hears them. Now, we've got no building to go to. We've got no tabernacle, but we do. Because John verse 1, verse 14, the Son of God tabernacled, made his dwelling, John says, among us. And the tabernacle and temple in all of their splendor were only pictures foreshadowing the true dwelling place of God in Jesus. So we hear as New Testament Christians this, this heart prayer that David would dwell in the house of the Lord And that means for us, when I pray to the Father through Jesus in the power of the Spirit, I am celebrating and drawing close to a God who brings me forgiveness, the light of his presence, who rules over me, and who hears my prayers, all of them and always. And as we come to this God through Jesus, what do we find ourselves doing? Verse 4, gazing upon his beauty. The beauty of God's wisdom. The beauty of God's mercy. The beauty of God's holiness. Everybody is seeking beauty. Granted, some people seek some pretty ugly and disordered forms of beauty, but everyone is seeking beauty. And David was living in an ugly world as we are. And David knew that he could make his heart and life ugly with sin. And David is saying, Lord, I need beauty. I need you In my life. And you've promised to be merciful. As I come to you. And will you please. Hide me. In your shelter. Verse 5. When the hard times come. Will you set me high. On a rock. The rock of your love. When life is difficult. And dangerous. And verse 6. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. And friends, this is our calling to go to this God and bring all of our burdens, all of our problems, all of our sorrows and seek his protection What does it mean, with verse 8 in front of us, what does it mean to seek God's face? It means much of what we've just been thinking about. It doesn't mean to go to a God of our choosing, 
our making. It means to go to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy, wise, powerful, merciful, covenant-keeping, and altogether beautiful. But to go to God is still jargon, isn't it? To seek his face is still a phrase which needs unpacking. Although it might look different in our different lives and life stages and habits and temperaments, it will mean that we're setting aside time intentionally and unhurriedly to be quiet before the Lord with an open Bible and with an open heart and bringing prayers Praise, confession of sin, and points of thankfulness to him. The two things we find so hard to give as modern people. Time and attention. And the hardest challenge of all to believe that as we give time and attention to God through his word and the details of our lives that he hears us and delights in us. But friends, this is what we've, we're being called to do. We're called to know God. And to know anybody, you have to give them your attention. And you have to give relationships time. Every Christian wants a deep confidence in God and great joy in God, which will take them through the storms. But how many Christians want to invest in getting to know God through his word and knowing the challenge And sometimes it's a scary challenge of asking God into every area where we're scared or angry or confused or downcast. But that's a God who comes to us in Jesus. That's a God who has sought us out and saved us. And he'll never punish us. He'll never withhold his love from us. He'll never berate us for our sins. He never puts conditions upon hearing our prayers. He says, seek my face. Seek his wisdom, love, forgiveness, mercy, power. And then finally, seek his guidance. Because We all love to be the idea of protection, don't we? God is keeping me safe. Because when you're protected, often you're just doing nothing at all. And we rather like that, don't we? God has got me. He's keeping me safe. And he has and he will. Hallelujah. But verse 11, and we'll close on this, speaks of guidance. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. So David is saying, Lord, my life is is still full of pain. You lift my head, you hide me, you surround me. But Lord, Monday morning's coming. 
And those people are going to be there in the workplace or at home or wherever. And he's saying, Lord, would you lead me in your way? And that's the detail of our prayers, isn't it? We're praying for insight, courage, self-control, energy, above all, faith. And as we allow all the details of our days and our lives and our needs to God, we should expect he will lead us in his straight path. Not because we deserve it and our prayers never earn it, but because we're living as friends of Jesus. And friends of Jesus are always heard by their Heavenly Father. And God will always hear their prayers. So verse 14. And I'd like us to say this out loud, if you've got your Bible in front of you, as we close. Verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And Father, we do. Thank you that you have come, that we might pray and be heard. Forgive our unbelief. We take up again the promises of your scriptures. Strength will rise as we wait and seek and believe, even when the pain does not lift, your goodness will meet us. And so we say thank you. And we pray your ongoing guidance and protection upon one another. In Jesus' name. Amen.